Support for Kansas City Today comes from Grandma's Office Catering, delivering made-from-scratch hot meals and individual boxed lunches for fast distribution to offices, warehouses, and factories, even on nights and weekends. Details are at grandmascatering.com. This is Kansas City Today. I'm Nomi Nujiadeen. Today is Friday, September 1st. Coming up, a new square dance group in Kansas City is putting a gender-neutral spin on the traditional American art form. The spirit behind Oddball is radical inclusivity. We're trying to speak about things in a way to where everyone will feel welcomed. We'll visit the Oddball Hoedown. Plus, during the Vietnam era, racially motivated infighting among American soldiers was so intense that the army was forced to respond. In the 1970s, increasingly young black men weren't willing to put up with the kind of treatment that their fathers and grandfathers had received in the military. How the U.S. Army confronted its so-called problem of race decades after a presidential order to desegregate the military. But first, some headlines. A Clay County judge ruled yesterday there's enough evidence for Andrew Dan Lester to stand trial. Lester, a white man who lives in the Northland, is accused of shooting black teen Ralph Yarl. KCUR's Peggy Lowe reports. Yarl is now 17 and a senior in high school. He testified today for about 40 minutes, speaking so softly it was difficult to hear him. He said he thought he was at the correct address the evening of April 13th and thought he'd be welcomed into the house. Instead, he said Lester opened his front door, said don't come here ever again, and shot him twice. When asked by Lester's attorney if it was understandable that Lester is an old man who was scared by the stranger at his door, Jarl said yes. Lester faces an arraignment on September 20th. Kansas officials are no longer required to allow transgender residents to change the gender on their birth certificates. Rose Conlin of the Kansas News Service reports the ruling yesterday is the latest development in an ongoing battle over identity document changes. Kansas Republican Attorney General Chris Kobach applauded the ruling by a federal judge. Kobach sought to end the state's four-year practice of granting birth certificate changes this summer, after Kansas lawmakers enacted a law defining male and female according to a person's sex at birth. A separate lawsuit will decide whether transgender Kansans will be allowed to continue changing the gender on their driver's licenses. A state judge has temporarily blocked those changes. Kansas City Mayor Quinton Lucas says the city will do everything it can to help transgender residents continue to access gender-affirming care. KCUR's Eva Tesfai reports. Last Friday, a St. Louis judge denied an attempt to block a Missouri law barring gender-affirming care for youth. The law, which restricts puberty blockers, hormone therapy, and transition surgery, went into effect on Monday. Lucas says the city will help people access that care across the state line in Kansas. It is important to make sure that we are providing transportation, counseling, access, and avenues to where people can receive care. He also says the city will continue participating in litigation and other legal efforts to overturn the law. The Sobella Ocean Aquarium at the Kansas City Zoo opens today, after more than a decade of planning. KCUR's Savannah Holly Bates has more. The aquarium will feature more than 8,000 animals from the coast to the deep sea, including sea otters, turtles, sharks, and even toucans. The Kansas City Zoo and Aquarium was able to rescue some animals who otherwise wouldn't survive in the wild. 
Six-year-old Flynn Shockey, who has been to at least three aquariums, was excited to see the coral reefs and the sharks that live among them. It's super cool. It's my favorite aquarium in the whole world. His younger brother, three-year-old Wilder, was focused on one specific feature. This helps. Visitors can see the sharks, as well as the other 200 species of animals, beginning September 1st. Entrance is included with zoo admission. We'll be back after this. It's Friday night. What places are you heading to for post-work happy hour? Tell us. This podcast is making a best of the best list and needs recommendation for happy hour menus at restaurants in KC. Text us at 816-601-4777. That's 816-601-4777. Standard texting rates apply. Kansas City's new gender-neutral square dance, you won't hear words like ladies and gents being called out with the dance moves. KCUR's Julie Denache takes us to a unique do si scene in the West Bottoms. On a sweltering Saturday night last month at the Emerald Performance Space in the West Bottoms, the string band Half Cider tuned up for an old-fashioned square dance. It's common for these shindigs to include references to gender, Traditional callers often use terms like ladies and gents to call out the steps. But here, violinist Rachel Krauss has kicked off a new type of community dance that brings more folks into the fold, no matter their gender. It is a queer-centered space, but all oddballs and weirdos alike are welcome. And those who have this shared placement of value upon like inclusivity and celebration and respect Cooling off near a big fan is Glenn Meese. He's wearing a white cowboy hat, a sleeveless western shirt, and a big silver belt buckle. There's been three sold-out dances this year since February, and Meese has been to all of them. You know, I mean, some dancers are more complex than others. There's ones where, like, the squares split and join each other, and you're going diagonally. Before Oddball, the last time Meese square danced, was in 1994, an elementary school gym class. People are going to get confused here tonight, but they're all going to be laughing the whole time. And people who are looking for partners, if anybody's still looking for a partner, just go ahead and raise your hand. Caller Charlie Myers steps up to the microphone, wearing a bright pink cowboy hat, a bolo tie, and a striped purple dress. Their job is to keep everyone moving. Is anybody not ready for our first dance of the night? for people who fall outside the gender binary. Calling out dance moves the traditional way, using ladies and gents, can be confusing. Meyer's goal is to use language that makes sense for everyone. We use larks and robins because the first letter of each word is L and R, so you go with lefts and rights. Without the constraints of gender, each dancer is free to be a lark for one dance and a robin the next. The spirit behind oddball is radical inclusivity. We're trying to speak about things in a way to where everyone will be able to feel welcomed. Myers recently moved to the area from Asheville, North Carolina, where they'd been calling dances for several years. When Krauss started building their team in Kansas City, it made sense to bring Myers on board. You don't have to have too much memorized. You just have to know that, like, Alaman left, what does that mean? Alaman right, what does that mean? Circle left, what does that mean? And those things are really, really easy to learn. Once everyone knows the steps, 
Myers says there's a magical moment when all the dancers move together. Once everybody's kind of jamming, it's just the music and the dancers and everybody's completing the moves all together. And you'll hear in the hall, you'll hear whoosh, 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 clap, clap. And then it's like whoosh, 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 clap, clap. Right, everybody on the beat. Yeah. No, your partner, your partner. This is Matthew Lawrence's first oddball. Lawrence got the hang of things pretty quickly. Charlie was a really good leader with calling and everything. It was great. It was a lot of fun. Rachel Krause, who organized all this, says it's an opportunity to explore new things in a safe place. It doesn't matter if you're a straight cis man being in this space where you may not have to subscribe to taking the lead in dance roles can also be a really powerful, beautiful thing for people to experience. For Kraus, it's all about bringing an old tradition to a new audience. We are starting to see some regulars. I do call them oddballs. You know, we are building this community of oddballs that are coming back time and time again. Though the dance is over for tonight, Kraus will continue the community building. They've got another oddball planned for late fall. For KCUR 89.3, I'm Julie Denishay. During the Vietnam War, many of America's white and black soldiers went to war against each other. Calculated violence on bases around the world and military prison riots threatened to undermine the army. The Kansas City Public Library's Anne Knigendorf spoke with University of Kansas historian Beth Bailey about Bailey's new book, An Army of Fire, which looks at how the army tackled its so-called problem of race. What was the problem of race and where did those words originate? The term was used by a lot of white leaders, but it really initially came from black leaders who were the ones who had created the initial discussion of the crisis that the army was confronting. They called it the problem of race because they wanted to emphasize the ways in which race was fundamental to the crisis. But they also called it the problem of race because they wanted to emphasize the ways in which the army finally needed to respond to the racism and the racial oppression that had permeated the institution over time. July 26th marked the 75th anniversary of President Truman's executive order desegregating the armed forces. Why was the Army still having a problem in the 1970s? Truman's executive order marked the beginning of the integration, the racial integration of the U.S. Armed Forces. But there was a lot of resistance on the part of the military to doing so. And it wasn't into well into the war in Korea that it began to happen, in fact. And it wasn't really accomplished until the mid-1950s. In the 1970s, increasingly young black men weren't willing to put up with the kind of treatment that their fathers and grandfathers fathers had received in the military. What were some of the proposed solutions and what did leadership ultimately land on? The first thing that they tried was leadership. Part of what they did there was to say, this is such an urgent issue that we are going to step aside from the ways in which we commonly think about leadership, which is rank hierarchy, and put privates in direct touch with the commanding generals. (laughs) 
Right. And I spent six years in the Navy. So, okay, you know. so hearing about these things, I mean, it's funny because, you know, we always would call that jumping the chain of command. Mm-hmm. That didn't last for very long, did it? Well, none of this lasted forever in the sense of the most creative solutions that they came up with. But what happened most fundamentally is that race was bureaucratized into the Army. And what struck me so much is that such a profoundly conservative institution was willing to try solutions that were profoundly creative. They let black soldiers wear afros and uh, other forms of black identity, slave bands, and you know other kinds of signals that don't fit with a uniform. You know, I love those parts in Vietnam movies, which actually I always wondered about. Like, why is that guy out of uniform? Yeah. And so now I know. Yeah. Well, and sometimes you know, in in combat in Vietnam, they were out of uniform because, because like yeah, they were in the mud. And, right. Yeah. So and everything else. <laughs> what are you going to do to me? Send me to Vietnam. Yeah. You're possibly the only scholar in the world who's directed a center for the study of force and diplomacy and a feminist research institute. And you write that you're certainly the only one who's written both a history of dating and a history of the U.S. Army. Will you please explain how those topics fit together for you? (laughs) Yeah. I'm interested in how social change happens. And so my first book about dating was really about the conventions that governed courtship and what rules people followed or broke as they were trying to deal with heterosexual courtship up to the sexual revolution. This book is about social change in a different way. Here I'm saying, okay, institutions really matter. And if we want to understand social change, we do what we've been doing, which is paying attention to the people who are demanding change. But we also need to pay attention to the institutions. And so this is a book that says, okay, this is one example of how an institution confronted demands for change and in at least a limited fashion changed. Thank you so much. I look forward to talking to you at the library. That was KCUR contributor Anne Knigendorf speaking with author Beth Bailey, whose new book is An Army of Fire. This story was produced in partnership with the Kansas City Public Library. This is Kansas City Today. I'm Nomi Nujia-Dean. This podcast is produced by Trevor Grandin and KCUR Studios. It's edited by Lisa Rodriguez and Gabe Rosenberg. To see Julie's photos from her story about gender-neutral square dancing, visit kcur.org, where you can find more local news from Kansas City's NPR station. If you like our show and want to help us out, leave us a review on your favorite podcast app. On Monday, we'll be off for Labor Day. Thanks for listening, and I'll see you on Tuesday.